good singing. You may be seated. Amen. Good singing indeed. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 23. We begin a new year, we set a new theme and put our thoughts and our minds towards what we want to focus on this year. And it is here from this rich and wonderful psalm in the 23rd Psalm that we draw our thoughts for the year. We'll look at this psalm this week and next Sunday morning. And then I'm going to do something that I don't know that I've ever done in 14 and a half years of pastoring here, and that is I'm going to preach one series the rest of the year. Some of you think that's pretty boring. Uh, it's going to be a series of character studies, so there'll be a lot of sub or mini series. We'll start with Noah, then we'll look at Abraham, then we'll look at Moses and look at and, and other characters, Ruth, Esther, uh, Joshua, on we go. And throughout the year, we are going to look, except for on holiday Sundays, uh, at that series, and it's going to be called Walking with God. And the process of walking with God has to begin with him leading us. And so we understand this morning and next Sunday morning from this 23rd Psalm just what it means for the shepherd of our souls to lead us. Look with me in Psalm 23 and we'll jump right into the preaching of the Word of God this morning. The Bible said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. All the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, help us this morning as we understand this well known psalm. Father, I pray this morning that the word of God that is sharp and powerful would divide asunder our soul and spirit and cut to the way that we think and the way that we feel. May we move past a warm and loving psalm, which it is, and move into the purpose of the psalm, and that is that we would be led by the almighty God of the universe. That because you, in the person of Jesus Christ, have become our good shepherd, the great shepherd and the chief shepherd of our souls, we would follow your leading wherever it goes, and it is a glorious path. Help us, I pray, Lord, this morning, as we both know and then as we do the truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we set our thoughts to begin 2023, I want to put us in attention or put our focus really throughout the whole year on this one question, and that is this, how is God leading me? Stop and pause for a moment and ask yourself, in what way has God, through His Word, through the witness of men and the preaching of the Word of God, through your own study of the Word of God, in what way has God ever led your life? Twice, the psalmist, David himself, says that the Lord leadeth him. Is that true in your own life? The race of mankind is led by many different things. Many in this world are led by circumstances, what we call life events. Maybe it might be their poor decisions. You know, if I'd just done things different 10 years ago, my life wouldn't be like it is. But now I'm just led around by the nose because of all these circumstances. That's how many people live their lives. They're led by their circumstances, and thus they can never break free of the shackles of the problems that they have to deal with. May I say to you, it's much better to be led by God than it is by your life circumstances. Many of our race are led by their emotions. Love. Now I can hear some of you saying, aha, pastor, love is a good thing. Love of God, love from God, the love of Jesus Christ. Yes, that is agape love. The word that I'm using here is eros. It means lustful love. 
the passions of your soul, the things that I want and that I covet. The Bible tells us that we need to be careful of that kind of love. And many that we find in our world today are led by the love of things, the love of money, the love of a woman or the love of a man, the love of their children, the love of their good name. They're motivated by the emotion of love, that which they long for. If you're led by love, you're going to be in trouble. Some are led by hatred. We live, especially in our modern country, in our world today, with divisive politics and dividing people in a country that is motivated by hatred. Whether it's racial divide, whether it's social justice, whether it's the anger that we find all prevalent in our culture, we find that hatred is a motivating factor for a good many people. They can't do that to me. And they're led by their hatred. They're led by their anger, their envy. Over the last two and a half to three years, I've noticed how people are led by fear. Now, yes, there is healthy fear. There is a good or what we call godly fear, a reverence and respect of God. But the fear I'm talking about and the one that David as a psalmist is going to write about in fear is not something we ought to be led by. Evil fear, fears that are sinful in their nature. Some of our race are led by circumstances, some by emotions, some are led by man. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, they just follow another man. Well, that guy's smart and that guy said it, so that's what I'm doing. Really? You're going to put your trust in another fallen, frail human being? That's where your trust is going to be? Now, I will say this. I said it in the first hour. I'm glad in my life that there is one human being that is a man that I have followed my life long and has never failed me. That's my father. But my father is fleshly. My father is of this earth, he's temporal, and he's made mistakes, though I, on the whole, am very grateful for who my father is. And if you don't know my father, he prayed to close the early service this morning, so he's a godly man, right? Simply to say, if we follow a man, the man will always let us down. Some people follow the traditions of men. Paul, writing to the Colossians, warned them not to follow vain philosophies and traditions of men. Some follow human reasoning, not divine logic, not real logic, but human reasoning. None of these walks of life will lead to success, friend. None. They leave you empty. They leave you without purpose. They leave you hopeless and in despair. Well, how do you know that, Kyle? Look around you. Look at the world you live in. It is a mess because there isn't clarity of purpose from a singular leader, and that leader being the creator of the universe, God himself. The only hope for a healthy, adjusted life is to be led by the God who made you. This is what the psalmist is driving our attention to. The Lord, God of heaven, is my shepherd. He's the one that's looking out for my soul, and he's the one that I'm willing to follow. Some might say, yeah, but the creator has made a mess of my life. I can tell you from the Bible, from God's testimony, and as a preacher, no, that is not true. Your life being led by God through his word will be full of peace and contentment and joy. Now, that isn't to say that the followers of God's leading do not suffer setbacks, that they don't have circumstances that are difficult. Quite the contrary, followers of God and his leading often have much more difficult circumstances in life because they're actually trying to live in a divine reality in the temporal realm. So there's a lot of saying no to our flesh and saying no to the world and saying no to the devices of the devil. There's a lot more difficulty in this, but it's a much more uh, contented life. It's a much more joy-filled life. There is a happiness in our soul that goes beyond explanation when we follow the Savior's leading. As a church, we are growing. On this first Sunday service of the new year, we find that our impact and our reach is expanding out throughout our community. But I often wonder as a pastor, what kind of people do the lost see when they see us? Do they see people who are following in the way that the Lord leads? Or do they see people who are following their own way, influenced by the world, snared by the devil, and engulfed in their own fleshly lusts? You say, 
I'm, I think I'm somewhere in between that, Kyle. No, you're not. You're either being led by God or you're being led by yourself. That's what the Bible teaches. It's not my opinion. It's true in my life as much as it's true in your life. I don't get a pass on this. I don't get some kind of exemption. The leading of God is the central argument of the Christian life. It's the purpose of our Christian existence. If we are to be successful this year, corporately, then you are going to have to say individually, He, God, leadeth me. That's the truth. The leading of God is not something stale, it's not something old, it's not something that's worn out. In fact, the true leading of God, I believe, is rarely tried or ever achieved by most Christians. I think the problem for most Christians is they just don't even try it. Yeah, you know, that's a great sermon, Pastor. I'll shake your hand, tell you a great job on the way out. I think that's a wonderful thought, but I'm not going to try that. Can I tell you, then your life will never have satisfaction. It'll never have joy. It'll never have a peace. It'll never have a contentment. Why? Because you're not even willing to try to follow the shepherd that you call the savior of your soul. God leading is an active and engaging thing. It's not something that's dead and droll, reserved just for a Sunday morning. I've been asked as a pastor and as a father, I consider my own three sons Why are we losing so many young people in Bible-believing homes to the ways of the world? The answer is because true Christians fail to follow God's leading in the decisions and the daily routine of their own lives. They're not willing to commit to what Christ calls us to. Pastor, I thought we would start the new year off right. I hope we are. My job is not to tickle your ears. It's to teach you truth. There's a secret to understanding Psalm 23. I want you to notice some verbs here. Now, I I will tell you, I had a D in English grammar for one semester in college. Okay, it's the only D I ever got in my life. I am not a grammarian. You're not coming to me to help you diagram sentences or get an A in your English language uh, class. Okay, my sons know not even to come to dad. They can come to me for math and for history and for science. But for English grammar, they go to Jessica. But I do know Hebrew verbs. I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to study these things. There's an interesting note on the Hebrew verbs in Psalm 23. Every single Hebrew verb that is given here, here are the verbs, maketh, leadeth, restoreth, comfort, preparest, and anointest. These are the verbs that are given in chapter 23, or the 23rd Psalm, I should say. Each of the verbs are imperfect in their Hebrew verb form. And some of you just said, wow, that's what I came for this morning. What does it mean? What does it mean to be imperfect? Now, I'm not saying the Bible's imperfect. I'm saying in the verb form or in the tense, they are in the imperfect form. That means that there is no end to their action. Said precisely by an ancient linguist or a student of ancient languages, they might say it this way, they are open-ended action verbs. In other words, we could say this, he will continually make, he will continually lead, he will continually restore, he will continually comfort, he will continually prepare, and he will continually anoint. That is a wonderful truth when you understand it in this little psalm. Consider with me our good shepherds leading then for a healthy Christian life. First, he establishes the relationship in verse number one. The Lord is my shepherd. Friends, that statement is both personal and perfect. If you were to read the psalm in the original Hebrew, and if you can, good for you. I would like to sit and learn from you, I think. But if you were to read it in the original Hebrew, here's how the verse would read in the forward or the correct form of how the Hebrews would read it. The Lord, my shepherd, nothing I shall lack. I put that in your notes there. You can see it. It's in the blue in each of your notes. The Lord, my shepherd, nothing I shall lack. Is that true in your life? The writer had a relationship with God. That relationship was God as the shepherd and David as the sheep. Notice that the relationship, as I state, is first personal. Is Jesus your shepherd this morning? Has there been a point in your life where you have understood Jesus Christ died for your sins? He gave his life for you. If you can't start there, then the rest of the psalm makes no sense to you. It has no purpose for you. 
If you can't start by saying the Lord is personally my shepherd, nothing else is going to make sense this morning. Here's what Jesus himself says in John 10 in verses 1 through 5. Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, that not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. Now, who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to the religious crowd. He's telling them, look, your rituals and your religion of the old dead Judaism is not going to get it done. It's not going to work. It's not going to be effective. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The guy that opens and closes the door, he's the shepherd. To him the porter openeth. And the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him. For they know not the voice of strangers. Oh, let's put a pause there. I hope that's true for the Christians in here this morning. That we are not actively listening to voices of strangers. That which is contrary to this book. Yet far too many Christians are living by the traditions of man, by their own emotions. They are being led by their own life circumstances that are spiraling out of control. He says, listen, the sheep, they don't listen to a stranger. They listen to me and to me exclusively. He goes on in verse number 7 and says this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I'm the door, but by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. If that's not underlined in the Gospel of John, I would encourage you to turn your pages to John. Find that verse, underline it even more preach this morning and out in your margin write psalm 23 i am the good shepherd psalm 22 tells us of the great shepherd psalm 23 tells us of the good shepherd psalm 24 tells us of the chief shepherd those are the three roles of shepherdhood that jesus christ himself fulfills the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep but he that is an hireling and not the shepherd whose own the sheep are not seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep he doesn't care about them and fleeth And the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is an hireling and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Notice in this very next verse is you and I. He's talking to the Jewish crowd, but he's saying to them, there's Gentiles who are going to believe as well. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one fold and one shepherd. May I say this morning, whoever you are and from whatever background you come from, if Jesus Christ has not become your shepherd, make him your shepherd today. The Lord is my shepherd. He establishes the relationship. It is a personal relationship. But notice, secondly, it's perfect relationship. I shall not want. There is nothing that we will miss, my friend. Is there something wrong with my microphone? We don't know what it is. Let's just go to this. I'm afraid that uh, whenever I like to preach a message and I feel like the Lord is working in a message, there's always technical problems, and it's not their fault. God bless them. You must have come for a doozy this morning. That's good. We're starting the year off right. What the psalmist is telling us in this particular part of the psalm is, I shall not want. There's nothing that I will lack. Do you believe that of God this morning? Do you believe that to be true of God? I mean, if he's established a relationship and he's the creator of the universe and the redeemer of your soul, do you actually believe that there is nothing that you will miss out on if you trust in him as your savior? There's nothing that you will lack. A lot of people won't accept Jesus Christ because they are afraid of what they will lose. They're afraid to trust in Jesus Christ because of what they might miss out on in this life. Because, hey man, YOLO, you only live once. May I say to you, you actually live forever if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Jesus Christ is to his sheep all that they ever need, the psalmist is telling us. He's complete, he's perfect. 
As a little child said, misquoting the psalm, and I don't know if they said it back in the back or where I first heard this. Maybe it was one of our kids here at the church. But they said it this way of this first verse. The Lord is my shepherd. What more shall I want? (laughs) That's a good way to say that verse. And yet there's many Christians who have first trusted him personally, but they don't wholly believe in the perfect nature of what Christ is and what he does in our life. And so they want something else, even though they have him. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. What more could I possibly want than him? The shepherd establishes the relationship. Then he begins to lead us. Number two, we find he leads us to his rest. What is the first thing that God leads us to? And that is rest. Now, some this morning might say, oh, I survived the holiday season. It was traumatic. Yes, it was, I'm sure, for many of us. Some had sickness physically, and some had sickness emotionally, and some had sickness in many other ways. The point is is that holidays are tough, but they're just a microcosm. They're a picture into the soul of what our real problems are. We don't have rest in this temporal realm. There is no rest in this world. The only rest comes in our Savior. Notice the rest that he gives to us in verse 2. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Literally, there is a relaxation. There is a restfulness in the supply of Almighty God. He leadeth me beside the still waters. I put in your notes there, his rest is where there is both supply and satisfaction. Again, we could turn the words of the verse around. I think of the old hymn. In fact, it's uh, page 214. 214, we sang 212 this morning in your hymn book, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. Here's what the first stanza of that old hymn says. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Should I doubt his tender mercies who through life has been my guide? Do you believe that this morning? The Hebrew reading, again, paints the depth of the picture. It clarifies even deeper what the psalmist is trying to say here. Here's what verse 2 sounds like or reads like in the Hebraic form. In pastures green he maketh me lie down. Beside the waters still he leadeth me. Our shepherd leads his sheep to rest because of the supply that he gives to us. The sheep never have to worry when they follow the shepherd, for he will both protect and provide them. Do you believe that about Jesus Christ this morning? Or do you think you're left to fend for yourself as a Christian in this world? When the temptations come, is it, well, it's me versus the devil today. Can I tell you, if it's you versus the devil, you're going to lose every time. But if you just rest or hide within the Savior Jesus Christ, you will win every time because he makes you lie down in green pastures he feeds you well he supplies you bountifully the sheep never need worry when they follow the shepherd because he's promised protection and provision he is ready for whatever may lay ahead in your life the definitive statement of the follower of god is that he leads us and we do not want for anything in fact we have all things in abundance for our daily need Many a Christian today does not believe this truth. That's why churches are dying and Christianity seems scarce in this country. Christians don't believe that Jesus literally has everything that pertains to life and godliness. That everything, the fullness of all things, is wrapped up in him. They just don't believe that. But here the psalmist says... He maketh me. He makes the opportunity continually available for me to just lie down in the green pasture he's given. That doesn't mean just become lazy. You're not going off to a a, a monastery to uh, forget the troubles of the world. It means that in this life, so long as you're walking in the word of God, following the shepherd's leading, you don't have to worry about this life. What a joy. There is no deeper satisfaction than that. beauty, what rest, what relaxation, what truth. If you say to me this morning, that's not true in my life, pastor, my response would be, then why not? It should be. You mean, Kyle, you don't worry about anything? I try not to. Worrying doesn't get anything for me. 
When there are troubles in our life, and Jessica and I have experienced many in our married life, I have experienced many and caused many in my own personal walk with the Lord. But when I have been the reason for the problem, when I forsake the problem and go back and lie down in his green pastures, he makes me lie there. He provides the safe haven for me to come back into his fold and into his rest. His rest has supply, but his rest, I put there, has satisfaction. He leadeth me beside the still waters. Do you know that the picture of heaven in eternal state is that there is a sea of crystal glass, still as could be. This is the picture here. You you do not take a sheep and try to give them water at a raging rapid. (laughs) You'll have a lot of dumb sheep that are washed downstream. By the way, just in case you wonder, we are the sheep, and sheep are the least intelligent of all animals. That's a nice way of saying we're dumb. We're not that bright, especially when it comes to eternal things, because we are living in the temporal. We have to trust in him. We come and find the still waters. By the way, in the word of God, there's two things that are called waters, the scriptures and the spirit. So the holy scriptures are a water source that we come to and draw sustenance from. And the Holy Spirit is a still stream, a stream that controls us. And the picture is very clear. There is an alcove that Jesus brings us to. He brings us into a place where the scriptures are are elevated and where the Spirit of God is elevated. Do you know where that alcove is for you? It's right here. It's why you want to be part of a good local church wherever you live and whoever you are. Being a part of a local assembly is a place where you can come and find still waters. Listen, when churches are in chaos, the people of that place are in chaos. Their lives are all kinds of messed up, and it's not long until they leave. It should be a place of quiet rest when we come together into this place. It should be encouragement. Through the the water of the word and the water of the spirit, we should be refreshed time after time that we come into this local assembly. It's the joy of it. By the way, it is a place where fresh water flows in, and fresh water has the opportunity to flow out. Do you know what happens to a pool of water if it has a lot of great water flowing in but never flows out? It becomes a marsh. It becomes stagnant. It becomes a place of death. Rest is the promise given to those within the fold and within the family of God. He establishes the relationship. Next, he leads us to his rest After his rest, he leads us to his righteousness, number three. He restoreth my soul, the Bible says. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The word righteousness here just means right actions, or we might say actions that are right by God's holy moral standard. His righteousness produces restoration and realization. In other words, when I have God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness in me, when the shepherd is leading me in paths of righteousness, there is both restoration and realization. Again, in the reading of it in the Hebraic form, my soul he restoreth. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness, notice, for the sake of his name. Righteousness is not for your sake. Some of us, if you really want to sit and stew on that for a second, your brain kind of goes, because we often will say things like this. I want to do better so I have a better standing with God. You can't. (laughs) That's not the purpose of righteousness. You are a filthy sinner just like I am this morning. You're welcome. Happy New Year. But I, I get his robes of righteousness. Well, you might have a better reward. We'll look at that in the last point in verse number six this morning. But the point is, in our own righteousness, there's nothing good in you. Some might even say, I'd, rather have, I'd like to have his righteousness so I can have a better reputation in the community. I mean, reputation is what matters. I want status within this local body, this church. Righteousness does not do that for you, according to this verse. Righteousness end, the end of living righteously, righteously, where he leads us in righteousness, is so that his name is glorified, period. That's it. That's the purpose. 
Whew. It kind of changes it then, because sometimes we are in a little bit of a selfish mood. We're like, you know, I don't, know if, I don't know if I act really righteous today. My team lost last night. I don't know if I really feel righteous. My car got smashed on the way to work. I'm not sure I'm feeling very righteous. Well, we do that. Because you know what? I can just do more tomorrow and make up for it. No, no, no. Everything you do is for his name's sake. That's what the psalmist is telling us. The shepherd leads us into righteousness, not for your name's sake, but for his name's sake. David says that the paths of righteousness that God leads us into are for the sake of his holy name. We've noted there are two things in this righteousness. First, there's restoration. He says at the beginning of verse number three, he restoreth my soul. The word restoreth is a far stronger word than it seems on the surface. In the Hebrew, it literally means he brings back my soul from death. In the garden, the living soul of Adam from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 died instantly when he ate of the fruit. There is within salvation a concept of regeneration. We are made new instantly before God. We have a right standing because of our faith in Jesus Christ. The word restoreth here does not refer in the Hebrew to that process of a right standing. It has the idea of bringing us to the point of remorse or regret. It's the understanding of what we are without him and what we can be in him. He restoreth my soul. Righteousness, then, is never in appeasing, feeding, or encouraging our old Adamic nature. What feeds my flesh will never fuel my spiritual restoration. Understand that this morning. Yeah, but I like it. And there's a whole lot of things that I like that over the 22 plus years that I've actually tried to follow the Lord as my shepherd. Oh, I've been saved much longer than that. But in the 22 years where I've earnestly tried to follow him as my shepherd and make him the chief end of my existence, the years that I've done that, I can tell you there's a whole lot of things that I like that I don't do anymore. What feeds my flesh will never fuel my spiritual restoration, ever. The great mistake of many a Christian, both modern and ancient, you can ask Paul and the Romans in chapter 6 of Romans, has been, the mistake has been that continuing in sin further proves that God loves me. That's the modern thought, isn't it? Hey, God loves you for who you are. Well, God loves you, but he died because of who you are. <laughs> kind of puts a new perspective on it, doesn't it? I mean, if he loved who you were, then why did he have to die? Oh, and our modern progressive friends, who I think are well-intentioned, well-meaning, their brains explode and they say, <laughs> you're just an old fuddy-duddy. Well, I'm old enough as the Bible, I guess. The, the point here is that we fall into that trap. A soul that is in the process of righteous restoration wants nothing to do with the things that would take his soul away from God. Once again, that's the point here. He restoreth. What is he leading us to? He's leading us to righteousness, and he begins by causing us to feel regret in our soul for what our sins have done. He restoreth my soul. Then there's a realization he leadeth me in, path, in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. The key word in the second thought of this particular verse, in verse 3, is the word paths. Listen to what Solomon, David's son, who wrote this psalm, says in Proverbs 4 and verse 18. But the path of the just is as the shining light. In other words, those who are walking on the path of righteousness, the path of the justice is a shining light that shineth more and more or in greater extent and greater extent until the perfect day or the culmination day, the completion day. The prophet Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah 26 and verse 7, the way of the just is uprightness. Thou most upright, dost weigh the path of the just. In other words, God is considering every choice you make. That's chilling and haunting and encouraging all in one thought. Continuing that thought of our pathway to righteousness, the realization that we must have in Psalm 119, 105, a verse that we know so well, thy word is a lamp unto my feet, 
and a light unto my what? Path. The journey that I am on. What journey is it? It's the journey of walking with and after our good shepherd, Jesus Christ. What I want us to consider in 2023 is, why are you a Christian? Why even do this at all? If you're not willing to let the Lord lead you in every way, there really is no point in us being here. It is God's word that leads us to a right relationship with God's moral perfection. Until you and I realize that the Bible is both our only hope and the most direct help that God gives, then we will not have his righteousness in our actions or our activities. Friends, righteousness is not something you just wake up knowing. (laughs) Righteousness is a pathway. It's It's something that is learned. It is something that is both taught then lived and practiced so that we understand why it works and how it works. Through restoration of our soul and the realization of God's path in our thinking, we truly then can glorify His name. That's what He wants. He establishes the relationship. He then first leads us to rest. After that, He leads us to righteousness. Then, number four in our outlines, and in verse four, He leads us in His reality. What is life really like? Verse four. Yay. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Friends, that is life. I have used this verse many times in comforting families at the death of a loved one. It is, it is absolutely appropriate and right for that usage. But the meaning of it, its real purpose, is much deeper than that. I put in your notes there that the reality of God or the reality that God dwells in is given to us in verse 4. God is above the valley and he is the brightness that removes all shadow. And so God in his glory is reality and while we presently are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that's really what the valley of the shadow of death is. It's just this life. I put in your notes there, sinful fear challenges God's reality, and that's where most of us fail. It's why most of us fail. But simple faith will comfort us continually. That's verse 4. That's the summation of all of verse 4. Nothing that happens to me in this life can shake my faith in God's plan for me. That's a hard concept to get around and to really trust by faith. Life is tough. It gets hard to live in the here and now, but that is where God has us. And as our good shepherd, he has not left us here alone or without direction. The sinful fear that he talks about here, or I will fear no evil, is the evil that keeps us away from doing what God expects and what God wants. This life, this existence, is shadowed by death. Death haunts our race. It cripples our ambition and has removed our freedom. Death is the result of sin, particularly Adam's in the garden, as we noted. The Hebraic phrase once again helps with clarity here. The phrase, I will fear no evil, can be read this way also. I will have no evil fears. So some fears are good. Oh, yes, you should fear God. Let me just go ahead and state that this morning. The Bible tells us that. What he's saying is you're not going to have sinful fears that will keep you from living in the reality of the good shepherd. And that's what we do. We allow fear. We allow our emotions. We allow the logic and traditions of men. The evil fear here is of death, of dying, and of decay. Sin and its effects cannot cause me To be crippled in fear, the psalmist is saying. How many of us in this room are crippled with fear? How many, perhaps under the sound of my voice this morning, are crippled with fear? Look, there is a fear of dying. But if Jesus Christ is your Savior, death and the grave is just a transfer. It's a portal through which we enter into his glory. I'm not suggesting we're all running for that. But I am suggesting that's the reality of that. The Bible says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I 
because of the relationship I have with my shepherd, will have no sinful fears that beset me and keep me from doing what is right. How is this possible? The latter half of the verse, simple faith. Sinful fears are overcome through simple faith. That's what verse 4 is telling us. For thou art with me. Listen, if God's with you, who can be against you? Paul told the Romans in Romans chapter 8, who can separate you from the love of Christ? And then he goes through a long laundry list of beings greater than us, beings that are us, and some things that are beyond us. And the point is, none of them can separate you from the love of Christ. Thus he concludes, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us so. The word comfort here in verse number 4 where it says, thy rod and thy staff comfort me, means to compassionately console us in our regret and remorse. Remember, in the righteousness phase, there was a process of where we needed to understand that we were sinners and that that righteous pathway was a a continual progress of restoring our soul. Here he says, hey, by the way, you can be comforted in the fact that you're changing. The rod mentioned here in chapter 23 in verse 4, is a symbol of the Lord's strength and protection. The rod was a sturdy wooden stick used as a weapon to fight off the wildest animals who might have hoped to make an easy meal out of an otherwise defenseless flock of sheep. He would take his rod and defend them. David knew full well what this meant. He had done so against a lion and a bear in his younger days. Paul to the Ephesians says that we have a a sword, uh, the word of God. It is the only offensive weapon that we have. How is it that you and I can live within the reality of who God is? Get in this book. Look, none of you has gone any day missing reading their Bible yet this year. And if you've been in church and you have it in your lap right now, I mean, if, if this is the only day you're coming, at least you can say for a little while I was on track. Read it right now. Because this is your only offensive weapon against the devil, the world, and your flesh. This is it. And this is what the shepherd uses. The staff that is mentioned here in, verse, in chapter 23 and verse 4 is a symbol of God's guidance and loving kindness. The staff was a long, slender stick, often hooked at the tip. It was used primarily to direct the flock. When all the sheep were together and they could not see beyond themselves... And they couldn't even see the head of the shepherd. They could see the crook of the shepherd's staff raised into the air as the banner for them to follow. In other words, this is your best offensive weapon, and this is your best direction in life. The shepherd used his staff to keep his sheep out of danger and close to himself. If they would be walking on a mountain pass, he would take that crook in the midst of the flock and find the ones that were at the outer edge nearest the cliff to fall off, most in danger. And through that staff, he would gently nudge them back. He wouldn't yank them back. He would gently nudge them back into alignment and to safety. That's what this book does. Thy rod and thy staff, they console me in my remorse, comfort me. If a sheep had become trapped in a precarious position, the ancient shepherd of old would loop the curved end of the staff around either the body or the neck of the sheep and gently retrieve it back to safety. That is also what the Bible does. A just man falleth seven times, yet riseth up again. It's through the word of God that we are restored. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The Bible is God's rod and staff. He will use it to comfort, to correct, and to console us, his dumb sheep that he gave his loving life for. It isn't, excuse me, it isn't hard to listen to what the Bible tells us to do. It's hard sometimes to take the simplest truths and do them. Once we have his rest, his righteousness, and his reality, the shepherd, number five, leads us on to his resources. And I must hasten along or your attentive resource of resourcefulness will be gone. So I will quickly move through these last two verses. We find his sovereign preparation and his spiritual anointing are given to us. Stop and think what verse 5 says. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. 
God sets the table. He then anoints our head, which results in limitless resources for our daily living. Our cup runs over. We are led first to his sovereign preparation for us. The word preparest that is used in verse number five is a verb that means to arrange in a particular order. It was originally a military term of setting your troops in array strategically for success. Thou preparest, you have strategically set in order what is going to come in my life and in my day for success. Well, this doesn't feel like success. Trust me, when it's of the Lord, it is for your success. In the place of our enemies, excuse me, in the face of our enemies, the world, the devil, and our flesh, our shepherd literally arranges for us to have provision. They want to give us things of this world that have temporary good. He wants to give us things of his realm and of his glory that have eternal worth. Our enemies want us dead, in despair, or destroyed. God, our loving shepherd, will lead us to the fullness of life and the abundance in it in front of those beggarly enemies. In the latter half of the verse, we find his spiritual anointing. The picture here is of the high priest being anointed. Psalm 139 talks about the oil being broken over the head of Aaron, running down, covering completely, running literally off of his beard and down. To us in this age, we might think that an odd thing, but to them, it was a holy thing. It was a picture of God's spiritual filling, the anointing that was necessary for that one high and holy day to enter into the presence of God. There are two elements to God's provision for us in verse number five. He anoints our head with oil. That is the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. And the second is that our cup, that is what we have in this life, that which we have to do in this life, it runs over. It speaks not of his indwelling spirit. It speaks of his infinite state. God is our source of everything. If you're following him as your shepherd, you know what I'm talking about this morning. Finally, this morning, he leads us to his rewards. What reward does God have for us? Well, he tells us in verse 6. The ultimate end of rest and righteousness and living within his reality, living with his resources, is goodness and mercy. Surely, he says. It's an interesting thing, by the way. I've noted several times in this that if you read it in a Hebraic form, it doesn't change at all the meaning or the purpose, but it gives better clarity. Do you know this verse in the Hebraic form read right to left as they would, and in the verb, in the context form? Do you know what it reads? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In other words, there's not a single change that the translators made. Not one bit. Oh, the depth of that. C.H. Spurgeon, a preacher of two generations ago, once called goodness and mercy God's footman in a message. In his day, in Spurgeon's day, when a wealthy man traveled, two footmen would take their place behind him on the coach or the carriage. Their task was to smooth the way for the one inside the carriage. Where he went, they went, always there. When his coach stopped, they jumped down to open the door for him. They would hurry into the inn to make sure his room was ready and his supper was served. God's two footmen, Spurgeon noted, are goodness and mercy, and they follow us just like those footmen to smooth our journey home. God, your shepherd, loves you and has goodness and mercy for you. What a good God we serve. Goodness means, in the material realm, welfare, prosperity, and happiness. But this word goodness that is used in verse 6 in the spiritual realm means morally good, means you are actually good. Surely his moral goodness will follow everything you do. The moral goodness of God will go everywhere with us, for it dwells within us. He says, surely mercy will follow us as well. Mercy means kindness. If you don't see God as kind, then, friend, you have a following problem this morning. I'm just being honest. If you're far from God, you will find him to be mean, even maniacal. 
at times. But following God, you will know him to be merciful all the time. That's the difference. No matter where you go, God's twin blessings of goodness and mercy will follow you. That is not a promise I'm making to you this morning. That's a promise that God gives you. That's better than anything I could promise you. The greatest reward for mortal man is that the eternal God promises to go with you in his very nature, his very person. Jesus leading us and the Spirit following us. What a reward for faith in Jesus Christ. The second reward is that it forms us. That's the last part of verse number six in the end of this psalm. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, this is the only verb in all of the verbs in this psalm that's not imperfect. It's not in a perpetual or continual action. And you say, great, what's that mean for me? Well, I'm glad you came. I'm going to finish the thought for us this morning. The phrase, I will dwell is ultimately the result of God's perpetual leading in our lives that we choose, because of his leading, because of his love, we choose to be committed to him. I will dwell. I will abide. I will be in the presence of God forever, David is saying. The words, I will dwell, is a sequential perfect verb. See, now you can go home and tell your friends you know all kinds of Hebrew verbs. This verb form in the Hebrew connects to an earlier verb to form either a sequence of time or a sequence of thought and events. Here's the picture then. The leading of God is to affect the choices we make. In other words, David is saying, because of all of the guarantees that I have as the Lord being my shepherd, I will dwell in his presence daily. Now tell me why you can't have devotions tomorrow. Tell me how you can't spend time with the people of God this year. Tell me why you can't involve yourself in the work and the will of God. Why you can't consume his word. And it's all based upon then your choice. The shepherd is leading. He leadeth me. Do you believe that? So in closing this morning, who will you be this year? Where will you go for God? What will you accomplish for his glory? Maybe the best question I can ask this morning is, who's in charge of your life? Happy, joyful, content human beings are ones who start by saying, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Those believers in Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, those who have the relationship with him, will then be led naturally because they trust him and love him as much as he loves them to rest, to righteousness, to a divine reality beyond this daily grind that we have to live on this earth, to heavenly resources that we couldn't imagine before, and ultimately to the eternal rewards that will both follow us and form us in all that we do. All that we will say, my God leads me. Father, I pray this morning.